Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show, episode 146. I hope you are all doing very well. So, uh, today I will take uh, questions that you have asked in the comments with the hashtag Ask Abhijit. And at the end of the thing, if I have time, I will take some live chat questions as well. But before we do that, let me do my customary greeting. Let's see who all is there on the live chat with us. I can say Geopolitical Dubey, Prasad Londe, Akshay Kamat, Typical Gamer, Dhruv Verma, Akash, Nachiket, Shashwat, Deepak Kumar, Manoj, Gyan, Kannadigas, Dev, Dev Thakar, G. Sai Siddharth, Vishnu, Kumar, Peshwa, Bajirao, Feminist Slayer, Darshan Patel, Sai Kiran, Pinky, Kumari, Ankit, Kumar, uh, Rita Singh, Aniket, Biswas, Samudra Gupta, Vladimir, Adityanath, Ankit, Kishore, Sarthak, Saddam Hussein, Komoistas, Mr. Gigachad of India, Karan Nalavat, Brijesh, Arsh, Shivam Singh, Arnav, Agarwal, Ishan Singh, Sanat, Jitendra Kumar, Aaron, Dude, Munna, Samra, Samrat, Shukla, Tushar Gupta, Asmodius, Rohan Kadu, Durga, M, Aditya Bhatt, Belvin, K8991 Gaming, Ronald, System Tools, Librandu Detector, Dharmocratic, Jay Dikshit, Sushant Gupta, Technish Rahul, Rustin Cole, Madxai, Asminor, Minato, Nami Kaze, Ankit Kumar, uh, Siddhant, Raj Kumar, Vladimir Adit, Vladimirovich, Putin, Dude Munna, Karthik, Raghunath, Aryan, Samarth, Arpita, and lots and lots of other people. Great to see you all on the live show. Uh, I could go on forever, but yeah, I think we should uh, again say Tejas, Puru Kumar, Yashraj, Madaksai, and lots of other people. So, uh, with that said, I uh, will now start with the questions that you all have asked, and let me see how many I can take during the session. So, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> all right. Mm. Okay, let's begin. So, what's question number one? Golden State 2002 says, Could you talk about Buddha and his race? Many whites are saying that he is Scythian and blonde-haired, blue-eyed now. Well, how does he become blue-eyed and blonde-haired now? He was a historic, historical person who lived about two and a half thousand years ago. That's what that's the best estimate that we have. And uh, so, what did it look like? So, uh, Gautam Buddha, as we know, was born in northern India, Lumbini. It's now currently part of Nepal. Yeah, but historically, it's always been part of India, yes, right? So he was born in northern India. He lived his life there. He preached, uh, you know, he, he gave his sermons all across northern India, eastern India, and he died in the city of Kushinagar. That's, that's where he passed away, right? And uh, the Buddhist texts tell us a lot about what he looked like and all. There's a whole set of uh, characteristics that are described in which it is said that it looks like it, it, he, he had blue eyes. So that's not extremely surprising. There are lots of people in India who have blue eyes. It's it's a recessive characteristic, genetic characteristic, blue eyes, yes. I remember a couple of months ago, I was in a hotel whose manager had blue eyes, st uh, you know, striking blue eyes. And he was Indian, pro a proper Indian. There are, there are people in India. I mean, I would say most likely less than 1% of Indians would have blue eyes. And there are other eye colors also in India, green eyes and gray eyes and all, all those hazel eyes, whatever else. Yeah, Blue eyes is quite uh, 
rare, but yes, you do have people who have blue eyes in India, in Northern India, in Western India, in, in Gujarat, in, in, in Rajasthan, in, uh, in the Maharashtra as well. I'm sure even in Kerala, you will find people with blue eyes. Even in Sri Lanka, you will find people with blue eyes and so on. Yeah. So you do find people with blue eyes. That doesn't mean that, that these people are so-called white people, the, the so-called white race. And once again, you also find people in India who have blonde hair. You find people who have red hair also in India. It's it's quite rare, but you do find these characteristics also. India has incredible genetic diversity. So as far as we know, uh, Gautam Buddha had blue eyes. It, I mean, some some versions of of his description in some in some reports or some uh, writings, it is uh, in some accounts he is described as having blue eyes. So maybe he had blue eyes. I, th th there is no account that des describes him as having blonde hair or hair that is not dark right and skin color i'm not sure maybe light uh, light brown or something must have been the skin color that's typical of people who live in northern india yes now about him being scythian so the scythians first of all we have to understand are an ancient people nomadic people who lived across eurasia europe and asia hmm? and uh, they were of indian origin they lived in the places that in the regions that uh, were then called Uttarakuru and Uttaramadra. Uttarakuru was a present day Xinjiang and Tibet, more or less, present day. Yes. And Uttaramadra was present day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, all of that, Central Asia, what is now called Central Asia. The Scythians lived there and they were of Indian origin themselves. Of course, in European descriptions, they are described as having blue eyes and blonde hair. Well, Gautam Buddha is described as, as having Eastern Asian features when he, you see his statues in, in China and in, in, in Mongolia and Japan, etc. In India, he's described as having Indian features because he was Indian and so on. So people will, will shape their perception of history based on what they look like. But the Scythian, and, and the best genetic analysis that has been done of various Scythian uh, remains... Uh, tells us that they were of Indian origin, R1A1A, even the Kushans, yes, that's their patrilineal genetic lineage. Uh, uh, and the Scythians, on average, the, the average Scythian had light brown skin, brown eyes and dark hair. Yeah, and they were like reasonably tall. So that's what Scythians looked like. Now the truth is, the fact is that the Scythians did in progress into India, they did enter India. This, their entry, their re-entry rather into India happened around 150 BC. Now Gautam Buddha lived around 500 BC, roughly, roughly, give or take. Yeah. So the Scythians uh, reappear in India. I mean, they appear in India as invaders and conquerors uh, about 350 years after Gautam Buddha died, roughly, give or let's say three centuries after he died. So while he was alive, there were no Scythians in India. The Shakas, and yes, we know what he is called. One of the one of the the epithets used for him, or terms used for him, is Shakya Muni, the the, the Shakya monk. So the, Shak, the word Shakya sounds very much like Saka or Shaka, which is the term that the Indians and Iranians the the we used for the Scythians. The Indians called the Scythians the Shaka, and the the our Persian cousins called them the Saka, right? But that's not Shakya. That's different. So even I, many years ago, used to believe that the Gautam Buddha may have been Scythian because he is called Shakyamuni. But it's not Shakamuni or Sakamuni. He is Shakyamuni. So the Shakyas were a warrior clan. 
in northern india right the Shak the shakya uh, dynasty the, the clan they were kshatriyas they were warriors they were royalty yes so that's why he was called shakya muni because he was a muni he was a monk he was a, uh, not a warrior he chose not to be a warrior he chose to be a monk and all that whatever he, we know the story so that's why they called him shakya muni he was not a skithian monk he was not of skithian extraction skithian lineage he was of northern indian lineage so it's completely wrong to say that gautam buddha was a white person with blue eyes maybe he had blue eyes but he certainly did not have white characteristics and features and blonde hair now why is this has this question arisen i'll show you why this question has arisen uh let me show you uh how gautam buddha is being described these days uh using artificial intelligence uh you know reconstruction so this is a person whoever it is saying who says that i finally trained mid journey ai to draw a proper buddha and according to this lady this is what a proper buddha should look like this individual looks like the greco roman descriptions of various sports people right uh and 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 uh, she she uh, tries to justify what she's done by saying that most people have been extremely positive but to the handful of fools complaining about buddha depicted as white two points first he is descended from skithians and in pali he is described as having as being pale with blue eyes and secondly the japanese depict jesus as japanese so got a problem with that so this is not any kind of justification i mean it's not her fault that the, the ai has thrown out this image maybe she is given certain prompts that made uh this uh, depiction of apparently buddha look like uh, he is of greco roman extraction so in pali he is described described as having as being pale with blue eyes well i the in pali i would be described as as being pale with brown eyes that doesn't make me a white person if i had blue eyes that would not make me white, a white person and secondly the japanese describe depict jesus as a japanese so i mean what sort of argument is that so the problem is that these days there's a lot of ai art coming out yeah and the problem with ai art is that it's all biased i mean the see what is artificial intelligence artificial intelligence is is a neural network it's 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 a set of programs and algorithms yeah that you have to train you have to train the, the these ais with data lots of data in case it's it's uh, an ai that uh, that outputs text you have to train it with millions and millions of uh, you know uh, examples of text and then slowly over time it's able to uh, recognize how language is formed and so on and so forth and then you have these ai chatbots these days that that uh, talk to you as if they are a real person and they sound quite intelligent and people are really enamored with this right now yeah it's 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 a fad that's going on right now and of course we have all of these uh, ai image generators that are throwing out all these images and the the problem is that the 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 data that these ais are trained on is all data that the, that has been fed to them by their western trainers so when it comes to throwing out images of indians it's going to be biased it's going to be more eurocentric right and and mm, let me give you some other examples here's uh, so P indians are 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 having fun with the with this ai uh, image generators and all that so here is a see whatever is being shown here uh, it's all generated by ai it's not generated by the person who has tweeted this so so if you are upset about the images please do not direct direct any hate towards the person who has tweeted this okay they are just playing with the thing and they are showing they are tweeting the, the kind of images they are getting so this is apparently prince siddharth gautam of shakya clan once again so you know so in in the top left image he is shown as having feathers in his hair because i'm sure the ai was told to to uh, 
output an image of an Indian person. So for uh, AIs that are trained in the West, Indian means Native American, right? So you see lots of these depictions of, of Indian historical figures having, having feathers in, in their headgear. And uh, yeah, so this is a uh, kind of stereotyped uh, depiction of uh, Siddhartha Gautam. These are apparently more realistic portraits of Prince Siddhartha Gautam, age 25, married, you know, and so on. Uh, final attempt at Prince Siddhartha Gautam. Uh, yeah, blue eyes, sure. But yeah, this, this, these, these depictions look more Indian and somewhat more realistic, I would say. Yeah. And here's more. So now uh, these are AI depictions of uh, historical figures like Lord Rama. So this is Lord Rama according to AI, Lord Rama and Lord Lakshman, the two, the two brothers, yes. And can you see this strange cross, inverted cross or whatever it is on their foreheads? I mean, how is that an Indian cultural characteristic? Yeah. So these are the problems that you find, that you see, you know, when you see AI, AI generated images about of, of Indian uh, historical figures and culture. Here's another. This is uh, Lord Jambavan wearing a very strange, uh, almost, almost uh, the 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 cape or or dress that he is wearing reminds me of uh, what Christian cardinals, you know, Catholic cardinals would wear. And even the the headgear, the crown, isn't Indian at all. Here is apparently Lord Lakshman. Uh, sorry, uh, Lord Hanuman. Well, why does he have uh, once again that face paint? That is that is typical or stereotypical of Native Americans because the Native Americans are called Indians, right? In in the U.S. and in much of the Western world, yeah. So once again, this is problematic, and this again, I'm I'm not sure <laughs> how to how to characterize this. You know, this image again, uh, and so on. Neela, chief of the Vanaras. Uh, this is something that you would uh, see in a movie like The Planet of the Apes or something, yeah. And this is Angad. So I do not blame the Indians, the people who are playing with these AI image generators. The problem is that these AI generators, image generators and, and text generators, etc. were trained on very biased data sets. Here, let's see some more examples. This is a very interesting uh, Twitter account. Yeah. Uh, so this, this looks uh, a little more uh, historically and culturally accurate or appropriate. This is what a ma man of Gupta age would most likely or perhaps have looked like perhaps yes certainly the the physical feature the, the the facial features look definitely indian this is what the hunnic invaders of india would have looked like this well the hunnic invaders of india would have looked more eastern asian not uh, the stereotypical uh, caucasoid look that you see here so this is a fail from the ai yeah uh, this is what the greco-bactrian kings uh, the Ind indo-greek kings would have looked like possibly but why did, do they have feathers in their hair once again like the stereotypical native americans this is again a problem and and, and the kind of dread, the clothing he's wearing is more european than anything you would ever see ever in india right this is what the suckers would have looked like indoskythians the the invaders well perhaps perhaps not we're not quite sure this person looks like a, a present day person who lives in central asia you know a mixture of indian characteristics and central asian turkic characteristics so these ai image generators and, and this is a, a lady from an indian woman from the early british raj definitely that indian ladies from that time would wear such clothes and the facial features are very much indian and this is a person from prehistoric Ireland. Sure. All right. So these are some examples. And this is the kind of fun that people have with AI. This is what AI is good at, you know, uh, not 
it's still not good at historical reconstructions it's it's good for playing these weird funny games and all you know uh this is an example of open ai's chat gpt uh it, it is not willing to make the basic inference on who was responsible for the bengal famine yeah these language models are the next version of wikipedia encoding hard structural biases under the guise of neutrality so the question that was asked to ai open ai's chat gpt is who was responsible for the great bengal famine and it says it was a combination of factors including drought and war related disruption blah 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 british colonial policies it's not accurate to say that a single individual or group was responsible solely responsible uh and then it's questioned further and yet it, it refuses to to hold the british accountable further th then the very more specific question was there a british politician or head of, head of government who had the ability to change the british colonial policy and so on uh so it it goes around and round around winston churchill but does not hold winston churchill responsible so that's the kind of bias everyone knows that winston churchill is the monster who killed more than 4 million bengalis deliberately it was an artificially engineered famine done it was it was done at the behest of winston churchill that monster who is responsible for the genocide of more than 4 million indians bengalis right indians of course and yet this uh, thing is is unwilling to tell you about that it's unwilling to recognize what really happened so that's bias that is clear bias now uh, on my channel i think more than a year ago i spoke about uh, algorithm bias right so, so let's search for it algorithm rhythm bias in case see i've got more than 1000 videos on my channel and many of the questions i've already answered so this is how you can search for something that you may want to look for so here is a a video more than a year ago from episode 27 of ask abhijit yeah algorithm bias how can ai be manipulated so in case you want to understand how ais can be manipulated and how they can be biased take a look i mean uh, watch this video it's less than 5 minutes long yeah in which i've spoken about how this is done so uh, that's the deal so the truth about gautam buddha and his race is that he was indian the problem is the indian education system in any other country if such a question would, would would be asked about one of the historical figures the questioner would be laughed at yeah i mean if if somebody would claim that that uh, like like in our case it is being said that gautam buddha was white let's say somebody makes the claim that julius caesar was black or every single italian person man woman and little child would laugh at that person but in the case of india indians are wondering because somebody made uh, gautam buddha look white so what was the race we don't even know the truth about our history it is the fault squarely that uh, it is the it is squarely the fault of the indian education system and our history teachers and our history textbooks they are to blame for this it it, it, it this is this is something that should be laughed at this is laughable it's risible it's asinine that somebody has portrayed lord buddha gautam buddha as a white person it's nonsense it's utter nonsense and yet when someone does it we get confused we indians uh, start questioning ourselves that was it true was he white what nonsense it is the fault of the indian education system that people have this question and people are so confused and and full of self doubt so i hope i have thrown some light on what this entire thing is about yeah okay let's move on to the next next question Aditya Srivastava says what's your opinion on AI art is it ethical i've heard many artists claim uh, that about art theft and cyber bullying how will art be affected in the future uh yeah ai art is a, is a problem you know is, so these ais they are trained to output art by feeding them millions of images images of 
art. Images of classical painters like Picasso and, and uh, Mozart, not, not Mozart, sorry, <laughs> uh, Picasso and, and whoever else, you know, um, Vincent van Gogh uh, and, and lots of other painters, you know, uh, painters from, from mainly from Europe, but also art from other parts of the world, I suppose, which would be in a small minority in the overall context. Yeah. And even lots of modern art is being fed into these AI uh, for in order to train the AIs. So art that is scraped off the internet. Yeah. Let's say you go to, let's say you do a Google search. Let, let's do it, shall we? Let's do a Google search. And uh, let's just do uh, modern paintings. Modern paintings or, or modern art. Modern art. Uh, and uh, we go here, and lots of these images that you'll find on Google image search will be images that are created by modern artists. Yes, 21st century artists. And it's so easy to scrape these images off of Google uh, image search and feed them into AIs. And then the AIs, what they do and is that they then are able to reproduce the same style as that of modern artists. So if you, if you tell the AI, paint uh, an image of a dog playing snooker in the style of so-and-so artist who may be alive today, may be a young artist, then the AI will produce art that looks exactly like what this specific individual would paint. So that is incredibly problematic. So it would... So now that AI has become so good at producing art, it's it it there's the real possibility that it's going to uh, put lots of artists out of business, and it's uh, yeah you know uh, it could constitute in some ways art theft because you're producing the exact same style as so and so person. Let's say I'm an artist. Every artist has their own style of painting or whatever it is. Then the AI could be if you if you let's say I'm an I'm a painter, a digital painter, modern painter. Yeah, I create, I create digital art and I have, let's say, 50 works of art that are available online, but they, they, they belong to me, the copyright belongs to me. So the AI can be fed that, that uh, data as input and then it will be able to start outputting anything in my style, which essentially puts me out of business forever. Yeah, so that is very problematic. So yes, many AI, uh, many artists have, have, uh, have pointed this out. That this is uh, extremely unethical, and it's a. Uh, we will. Uh, I mean, we will need to to formulate some kind of copyright guidelines or something like that, which uh, prevents this from happening. Because right now, it's it's a free for all. There are no laws. There are no rules. Nothing, and you can just scrape millions of images of the internet and feed it into your AI, and then the AI will do <laughs> can can essentially put artists out of business. Now AI is able to produce incredible art, all kinds of art, anything. Anything that you can, anything that you can imagine, it's it's able to produce it. It can produce lots of different versions and iterations of whatever you can imagine. So yeah, it's it's uh, it could actually, uh, you know, put painters out of business, and that's bad. That's bad. So right now there are no solutions, but somebody needs to find a solution. People need to get together, think about this properly, and and formulate the right solutions for this. Okay, Angel Dust says seriously. Is there any society where there is no discrimination? Wake up. It's human nature. Disappointed in you. So uh, this uh, person is disappointed in me. And I think the context is uh, the fact that I pointed out about uh, the, the, the incidents, the very high incidence of discrimination and racism in Israel. Yeah. 
so in response to that uh, this person see listen first of all no hate to anybody people have their own uh, uh, perspective and all that so we got to respect that so so the, the what this person is saying is indeed true there is absolutely no society in the entire multiverse <laughs> where there is no discrimination there is no society see people believe that there should be equality in the world that is absolute nonsense equality is unnatural there can be no equality in the world there can be equality of opportunity but there can never be equality of outcome which would be extremely counterproductive if you try to achieve equality of outcome you know if you try to engineer an equality of outcome why do i say there is that equality is unnatural have you seen two human beings who are exactly the same who are exactly equal in everything some people are tall some are short some are muscular some are skinny some are intelligent some are less intelligent some are athletic some are very unathletic and so on and so forth everybody has certain a set, set of skills and talents and some things that they are deficient in right that's that's just how it is everybody is unequal nobody is equal you cannot equate two people everyone's unique look at animals you think you can you equate a rabbit with a with a boa constrictor with a crocodile with a lion with a parrot with a, with a with a tortoise with an ostrich doesn't work like that everybody is different every species is different within a species if you if you look at tigers if you take seven eight different tigers they will all be different they will all have different characteristics and what is what are sporting competitions all about we are we are witnessing the world cup uh, football world cup right now what is it about is it a celebration of equality no it's a celebration of inequality now discrimination and inequality are a whole different thing now obviously in every society you will have discrimination and the the, the this uh, person is uh, definitely upset about the fact that i pointed out that there is so much discrimination in israeli society and the implication seems to be perhaps that uh, first introspect and look at indian society well let me tell you the problem once again boils down to the education system we are taught so many lies about india about our own history all your educate all your history textbooks just look at who wrote them who are the individuals who wrote your history textbooks and what what were their political inclinations like what were their agendas like it's quite transparent the entire indian education system has been under the stranglehold of essentially anti indian forces since the 1960s and 70s essentially since british times right essentially since since british times they have all been biased against india they have had and this agenda to portray india as regressive as misogynistic as as all those bad things they could think about as as a backward society as a primitive barbaric society and so on and so forth yes inequality discrimination casteism all that nonsense yes that's how every single textbook will teach you and that's why you are filled with these ideas and when i come and tell you that it's not the case you tell me that you are stupid i am stupid disappointed in you abhijit because you're telling us something our textbooks don't tell us well the problem is you have not studied enough history look at how indian history has been depicted over the centuries look at how the greeks wrote about india 2 and 1/2000 years ago look at how the chinese wrote about india there the chinese word for india was tianshu the center of heaven yeah why 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 would they call another nation the center of heaven Ab- give it a status above their own why why did everybody flock to india to to get knowledge 
why did the japanese write so 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 well about india why did the, why did the chinese write so well about india the chinese have always had this culture of superiority and yet they called india tianju the center of heaven the greeks wrote so so well about india the persians wrote so well about india even the europeans when they first came to india about 500 or so years ago wrote so so wrote about india in such incredibly glowing terms that the indian family system is the best family system in the world far better than anything europe can 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 uh, europe has european society has it's only once the missionaries came started coming into india that's when the portrayal changed it took it was a complete 180 degree turn and that's when they started suddenly creating this atrocity literature you haven't studied sufficient history that's why you don't you don't you're not you're not able to see this chronology yes and lots of indian scholars have written about this look at the works of minakshi jain dr minakshi jain who has been on the on on this channel uh, at least once at least yeah yeah so uh, i would suggest please study history properly you have the, i see listen i am not trying to say that i know all of history no i am still learning history i am still learning history i'm 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 still a student i'm still figuring things out but it is possible that i have i may have studied a little more history than than uh, the person who's asking this question possibly perhaps perhaps uh, he or she knows more than me in which case uh, they they can give actual uh, evidence but the truth is that india if you compare all the civilizations in the world india has been the fairest of them all with the least possible discrimination yes and now if you want to talk about discrimination you the the this uh, comment came in one of the videos in which i spoke about israel right you know what the truth is the truth is that there is more discrimination against jews in israel today today than there has ever been in india in the past two and a half, two, two, two and a half thousand years Jews first came into India maybe two or two thousand years ago or slightly before that, and they have lived in in India. Jews for more than two thousand years, there has never ever been anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic discrimination in India ever. And in Israel today, I can give you a thousand examples of discrimination against Jews. Let's, since we are talking about this, why don't I do it? Why don't I show it? Yeah, so I've I've spoken about this before. Let me give you some more examples. This is Indian Jews in Israel. It wasn't the Promised Land. So if you read this article, you can see the link, uh, the 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 URL. You can Google it. Yes, Indian Jews in Israel. It wasn't the Promised Land. There is a lot of discrimination in Israel against Indian origin Jews. They are Jews. They are your brothers, sisters, and yet you discriminate against them. Why? Why? Isn't Israel the the Promised Land for all Jews? if it is so then why is there discrimination against indian origin jews here is another the murder of a young bnai menashe immigrant this is a northeast indian jew yes from from churachandpur district of manipur so these people they believe they are jewish and they have been allowed by the by the israelis to come and uh, migrate to israel and then good god the kind of discrimination and racism they are facing these jews these indian origin jews here is one more indian lost india's jewish lost tribe faces hard times in israel read this article right here is more uh, benai menashe break silence to protest subjugation subjugation to ngo controlling their aliyah terrible yes intimidation to silence detractors and so on assessing the racism that exists towards the benai menashe community these are indian origin jews terrible terrible discrimination they are called china 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 
and they're ridiculed and they're assaulted and they're beaten up and they're murdered. Yes, in Israel. It's not only the, the Indian origin Jews. In Israel, some Jews are more equal than others. Ethiopian Jews have suffered discrimination by the Israeli state, which has been intelligent enough to divide ethnic groups to ensure there will never be a joint fight against them. So this is being done at the state level, not at the people-to-people -people level. This is institutionalized discrimination and racism in Israel, right? Against their own people, against their own, their own Jewish people. Israel gave birth control to Ethiopian Jews without their consent. Birth control, sterilized. You know, Israel has admitted for the first time it has been it has been giving Ethiopian Jewish immigrants birth control injections, often without their knowledge or consent. Yes, uh, and so on. So when did this stop? I wonder. The government had previously denied the practice, but the Israeli Health Ministry's Director General has now ordered gynecologists to stop administering the drugs. Which year was this? Twenty thirteen. So in 2013, they officially uh, asked the gynecologists to stop administering the drugs without the knowledge or consent of the, of the victims. So until 2013, at least this was going on as a state policy. Yeah, because Ethiopian origin Jews are, are dark skinned. They're not white, right? So it's fine. They should not reproduce. They should not be able to reproduce. There's more. Little hope of change for Israel's marginalized groups. Once again, Ethiopian Israeli protesters are arrested in Jerusalem. So you can read this. Ethiopian Jews confront racism in Israel, Middle East policy, council, uh, how, the Israel how the Israeli army's racist system harmed hundreds of thousands of Mizrahim. The Mizrahi Jews are the brown-skinned Jews. The, the the, the real Jews, the original Jews. And they are about 45% of Israel's population. And 45% of your population, you are racist against them. Can you believe the, the, the incredible uh, what's going on in Israel? Yes. So you can read the article about how the Israeli uh, army's racist system. It's a systemic, systemic thing. It harmed hundreds of thousands of Mizrahi Jews. Yes. The legacy of racism towards Mizrahi Jews, the, the brown-skinned uh, Original Jews, yeah, terrible, terrible. There are riots. Israel state rabbi spread racism in the name of Judaism. The rejection of Ethiopian Israelis Jewish identities. You know, people tell me that the Israelis have been so good. They went to Africa and they rescued the Ethiopian origin Jews, the black skinned Jews. And that's wonderful. They have made movies about that. And then see what happens when they reach Israel. Horrible. State rabbi spreads racism in the name of Judaism. We saw Jews with hearts like Germans. Moroccan immigrants in Israel warned from families not to follow. So there were Jews in Morocco as well. They, there may still be perhaps. So they migrated to Israel and then based on <laughs> the kind of treatment that was meted out to them, they warned their families not to follow, not to come to Israel. Stay in Morocco even though it's a Muslim majority place. It is better for you to stay in Morocco than to come to Israel. Just imagine that. So these are a few examples. A few examples. I can I can do a three-hour session and, and, and show you hundreds of examples. That is how incredibly racist and discriminatory Israeli society is. And the Israeli state itself is against its own people, not against the Palestinians, not, not against people of a non-Abrahamic religion, against their own Jewish people. So am I wrong to point this out? Yeah? And what 
and the, it is true that every society has some level of discrimination but overall if you look at indian society it has been the least discriminatory society the fairest society of all a society in which everybody could prosper for thousands of years what happened in the past 1000 years is that india was again under foreign occupation india society was mangled and distorted it was driven to despair and when a society cannot function the way it has evolved to function all kinds of uh you know distortions and and evil practices bad practices will creep into the society from outside yes but i have spoken about this multiple times so i'm not going to go on about this but the truth is that india society has always been the least discriminatory society in the entire world right now india society is is coming out of a thousand years of of destruction of wholesale destruction the worst genocide human history has ever seen so it will take time for society to readjust itself even right now we are under colonial laws yes hindu phobic laws uh, laws that that would that seek and 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 governance system and institutions that seek to eradicate indian culture from india yeah so that's what india is up against so let's not blame the victims let's blame the actual oppressors to, to who have distorted and destroyed indian society and made it what it is yeah india society like i've said it suffers from two things it suffers from ptsd post traumatic stress disorder and it also suffers from amnesia so it, it doesn't people don't know why the society is, has been distorted like this so they tend to blame themselves so it's so easy to make indians feel ashamed of themselves that your society is this and that and all that and that's what what they've been doing and that's why they ensure that the education system teaches you lies your teachers teach you lies your textbooks teach you lies your government teaches you lies your leaders teach you lies tell you lies they glorify the wrong people yeah and the, the result is a society that is totally brainwashed totally mentally colonized and a society that is ashamed of their own culture so please educate yourselves educate yourselves about what the truth is right let's move on from here okay razi toshif says um recently the west has tagged a price cap on russian crude oil by 60 dollars a barrel they said if any country doesn't follow this they will not be allowed to use tankers of eu nato and australia now india and china are the big big clients of russian crude crude oil and this will affect us should india and china not cooperate with each other on this issue and should not all the asian countries cooperate together work together to uh, to overcome the dollar dominance like india iran china russia sea nations that is uh, southeast asian nations perhaps central asian nations combined we are about 60% of the world's uh, global population if we do so even the west cannot sanction us that will make them exclusive yeah so the west is trying to impose these arbitrary oil price caps and all that who the hell are they to decide to At, at what price somebody should sell and buy oil yeah but they are trying to do that this is this is called arm twisting this is called blackmail so what's happening right now is possibly a move towards de-dollarization right now the us the 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 basis of the us hegemony over the world is the fact is the us dollars uh reserve currency status it is the world's reserve currency reserve currency the petrodollar so if the world or some section or some portion of the world let's say 50% of the world were to move away from the dollar then that would be a severe setback to to the this uh, to the anglo-saxon saxon hegemony on the world 
and that's what uh, various nations seem to be moving towards the BRICS plus plus the BRICS plus grouping right now it's just BRICS but many nations have expressed their desire to join the BRICS grouping and if that happens and if the BRICS uh, grouping comes up with its own reserve currency that is not tied to debt that is not based on promises false promises and just debt but it is actually uh, based on gold and a basket of commodities gold and oil and and graphite and uranium and whatever else yeah various metals and so on then that currency will actually have some real value and if a section a significant section of the world adopts that then um it'll be uh, it'll be a significant challenge to the uh, old anglo-saxon hegemonic world order yes but yeah it is very hard for nations like india and china to come come together to come to an agreement and cooperate when you see the the the, na- the nature of the chinese uh, empire the china the chinese are an empire it's an imperial power yes it's an imperial power with hegemonic ambitions of their of its own that's what china is and they uh they they also seek indian territory they lay claims on more indian territory and there is this history since the 1950s of of confrontation between india and china we know the history so it's very hard for these two nations to trust each other and yet they will have to if they want to make this happen they're going to have to find a way so maybe the russians can mediate between india and china or whatever but uh, india and china essentially cannot cooperate until the border issue is settled and the chinese have shown no signs of doing that they have been holding that as a damocles sword on over the head of india and so on so yeah big big challenges but if a bunch of nations come together and the other thing is that if if the brics grouping actually takes off and becomes larger then there is always the danger that the chinese will try to dominate the thing the entire coalition the entire grouping and use it for their own benefit yeah use it to further their own hegemonic expansionist imperialist agenda typically in a coalition of nations in a grouping of nations the most powerful nation essentially hijacks or takes over the whole grouping and uses the grouping to further its own geopolitical interests so that is always a danger when when you have a grouping that includes china so for that to be offset we would need india and russia to cooperate together and counterbalance china maybe even iran but the, but the iranians don't really see china as a threat because they don't have a common border with china so the iranians may not be so so inclined to working with russia and india to counterbalance china the two nations that have large borders with china currently are russia and india so these two nations see china as a threat whether they say it or not so there's this entire thing happening right now but yes i would say that the asian nations should cooperate and find and and create a new system a parallel system a system that will compete with the petrodollar system even the saudis want to join brics that would be a major blow to the petrodollar if they actually come in become a part of brics yeah and right now uh, very recently xi jinping president xi jinping visited saudi arabia he had uh, he uh, held a, a china arab nations summit he met the various leaders there it's including uh, the king king salman and mohammed bin salman and so on so yeah so china is is kind of taking the initiative and they are doing it obviously for their own interests so there are so many uh, different angles and different parameters that you do bring take into account when it, when all of this uh, when you analyze all this so it would be great if all these different nations come together but that typically happens when there is one major dominant power that makes them come together right now 
China is not that dominant. Yes, it is definitely the number two economy in the world, but nobody trusts China. And everyone is scared of China, especially it's the nations which have common, uh, which have boundaries with China. And China has border disputes, boundary disputes with almost all its neighbors. So yeah, that's a that's a tough situation that we are all in. If China were not that hegemonic, imperialistic, imperialistic and expansionist power, then it would make things so much easier. But that's the way they are. So we're going to have to see what happens, whether the, the leaders of these nations are able to find a way. Uh, ideally, but see, right now India is not that large in economy. Uh, it is the fifth largest economy in the world or so. Maybe in the next five years, it will become the third largest economy. Yeah, it will overtake Germany and Japan. It's it's a matter of time. It's only when India rises to a certain level to at least, I would say, $10 trillion economy. Yeah, That's when India would become a major force in its own right and be able to possibly counterbalance China on its own without Russian help, possibly. So uh, the way forward for India right now is to rise, to rise economically. Because with economic rise, with economic muscle comes military muscle, proportionally, and so on. So yeah, that's the situation. It would be great if all the nations come together, but it is right now difficult because people don't trust China. Nobody trusts China. But they do seek the economic benefits that China can provide. So that's the kind of catch-22 we are in. The nations that don't have borders with China are more open to collaborating and cooperating. But for us, like nations like India and, and Russia, it is we have to be much more careful. That's where we are. And that, that's that's the situation that the US can take benefit of, you know, to keep these nations fighting, to ratchet up the, the threat perceptions and so on. So there's so much there are so many games that are being played right now. There's the whole Ukraine angle as well. That's where we are. Tejas says, what qualified Zelensky for, for for becoming Time Magazine's Man of the Year 2022? And Daniel says, uh, what has President Volodymyr Zelensky achieved <laughs> to be named Time Magazine's Person of the Year? Russia is fighting it out, con conquering Ukrainian territory, while this man is only doing lip service. How is he helping Ukrainian civilians in doing this? See, when it comes to, okay, let's, let's uh, see Time Magazine's tweet. Uh, what did they say about Mr. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky? Uh, let's put that on the screen. Yes. Uh, Time Magazine's announcement. So this is what they said. Uh, Times 2022, Person of the Year. It's no longer Man of the Year. It's Person of the Year, which is fine. Volodymyr Zelensky in the spirit of Ukraine. So they have announced that he is the, the Person of the Year. And that's what it is. The question is, what has he done to, to deserve this? See, when it comes to, to receiving a Western award, what qualifies you for receiving a Western award is what service have you provided to the West? That is what qualifies you to receive a Western award, whether it is the uh, Time Person of the Year or the Pulitzer Prize or the Booker Prize or, or, or whatever the, the Nobel Peace Prize or whatever else it is. Um, what... If you win this prize, it means that you have offered significant services to the West that have, you know, and that's the reward you get. So Volodymyr Zelensky hasn't served the people of Ukraine. He has served the West. And, you know, sometimes a meme tells you a thought. Meme is more important. I mean, it is more, uh, it communicates more than you could communicate with, with words. So take a look at this meme. <laughs> So that's the service Mr. Zelensky has provided. If you remember Afghanistan, the US occupied Afghanistan for the best part of two decades, if not more. 
Afghanistan, the US occupation of Afghanistan was a massive money laundering op- op- operation. And obviously it, it uh, served to, uh, to uh, benefit the military industrial complex of the US. And a similar kind of thing is happening in Ukraine. Possibly a lot of money laundering, maybe some some, some of the stuff as well. So Volodymyr Zelensky is is uh, offering a significant service to the West. They wish to break up Russia eventually. You know, partition Russia, fragment Russia, destroy Russia as as a nation, as as a culture. So Zelensky can help them do that. You know, by by embroiling uh, the Russians in, in this war. And if you can drag the war for the next 3, 4, 5 years, 10 years, then it can hopefully bleed Russia, the Russian economy and the, and the nation, and hopefully destroy it. So Zelensky is, is helping the West uh, further their agenda of destroying Russia because they see Russia as a major threat. So the Chinese possibly they think that we can handle the Chinese. But Russia is, is a much bigger threat, apparently. right? And in the past, they have done similar things as well. Yeah, this is Time Magazine's uh, Man of the Year, 1931. Uh, it was Mr. Mohandas Gandhi. I mean, what service did he render to India? I wonder. He delayed India's independence for more than 20 years. Yes. But that's precisely the service he rendered to the West. Mr. Gandhi. So this is not the first time a leader of this quality has been given an award for services rendered to the West. They, the, the West are past masters at doing this. They create a fake leader prop that person up, elevate that person to legendary status, and then give these fake awards to make uh, the, the the gullible citizens of that nation feel that, yes, this person is really, indeed, truly great. That's what the West has done again and again and again. And they are still in the process of doing such things, including possibly in places like India, you know, propping up various <laughs> leaders, creating new leaders out of thin air, and not taking any names. So please don't accuse me of uh, I am saying this or that. I am saying nothing. They are doing this in lots of countries, you know, propping up various politicians and and portraying portraying them as as great revolutionary leaders. It's happening in lots of places. This is what they do. It is standard. It is the standard operating procedure, modus operandi, right? So Mr. Zelensky essentially has done nothing really to deserve this. What he has done is he has rendered this massive service to the West. He is. On, on call 24 by 7. Anytime he's needed to make a statement, he will come and make a statement. I think he makes video statements every day, if I'm not mistaken. And he will typically have lots of green screens around him and 15 different camera angles. And I will say, wearing the same, uh, the, the military dress every day and say whatever he's, whatever script is handed out to him. So that's the kind of uh, service Mr. Zelensky is, is. He's an actor. He's good at this. He's really good at this. So, that's the service he's offering. And for that, in 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 recognition of the service, to reward him for his service, he has been given this award, Times Person of the Year. And there was this Vogue photo shoot also, right? In which he and his wife posed for, for, the, for the cover of Vogue magazine and all that. So yeah, that's what it is. The ultimate warrior says, how can such a constrained economy be able to invent such things? I suspect it's he's referring to North Korea, yes. This technology, uh, and obviously the technology he's referring to is nuclear technology and and, uh, ballistic missile technology, ICBM technology, intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, The Koreans, the North Koreans have a a whole family now of of, uh, ballistic missiles. The Nodong, the Rodong, the Hwasong. The Hwasong-17 is their latest massive missile. 
it's a it's an intercontinental ballistic missile they have, that they have test, tested recently they've also conducted six or seven nuclear tests yes at various points in time uh, so the question is that how can such a constrained economy invent such things this technology is def- definitely being provided by china and it could be a threat to india as well north korea is a china funded puppet country whose existence is to be used to go on to war with major superpowers and sacrifice itself if needed to take the blame but take the blame away from china that's what the essentially the definition of a vassal state it's a state that is used as a proxy it is a state that is used for a variety of purposes let's say you are a very major power let's say you are a superpower and you want to do certain things but you don't want to be seen to do those things then you create a puppet state or a whole bunch of puppet states and you have them play various roles and provide various services yes and if they do it well and as long as they are useful for you you let them prosper you let them prosper look at what japan japan was really prospering until the 1980s until suddenly somebody pulled the plug on japan right so japan is a vassal state of the us it is under permanent military occupation of the us south korea the same and when it comes to the chinese north korea is china's vassal state so uh, this uh, this family this dynasty the kim dynasty kim il sung kim jong il and kim jong un now these three leaders they belong to the same family grandfather father and son yes um and uh, they essentially uh, they are propped up by china obviously and i'm sure the chinese have provided provided them various uh, kinds of technologies yes uh, including ballistic missile technology which was then passed on to pakistan via north korea and possibly even the pakistan nuclear program uh, w- not possibly definitely some of it was stolen from the west and the west knew it they allowed it to happen because they wanted to counterbalance india and then some of it was provided by the chinese as well so the chinese i i, I spoke about this yesterday they told the americans that in in i think 2012 or so when they were in control of pakistan when they were Ch- pakistan's big daddy they said to the americans that pakistan is our israel we are using pakistan the way you use israel so israel is another another american vassal state in the middle east and they use it in a variety of ways which we will not go into right now so uh north korea the chinese will prop up the regime the north korean regime the kim jong un regime as long as north korea is useful and it's going to be useful indefinitely as long as the americans are in control of japan and south korea and as long as that situation exists north korea is very valuable for the chinese as an attack dog as a destabilizing factor as a, a nation to use in case of war to to maybe launch missiles at japan and south korea and all that so the chinese can be seen as as having stayed away from all this their hands are clean the north koreans are doing this so it gives you plausible deniability even though everyone knows who the real master is and some day it can be sacrificed to take the blame away from china like uh, ultimate warrior is saying here so yes this is a vassal state and not all vassal states are used for military purposes japan developed so many wonderful technologies which the americans whatever was useful for them they have taken yes right now taiwan is a vassal state tsmc is being stolen by the americans now yeah the semiconductor uh, corporation it is now the the heart the core of tsmc is now being relocated to the us which means in a few years um, taiwan will be expendable maybe in 3 years maybe in 5 years and let's see what how things go by then maybe by 2025 perhaps who knows the americans are are, are doing this very rapidly there's already one large plant or tsmc plant in arizona and the second one and a second world one is already being built and so on 
So that's how you. So, so Taiwan has never been used as a military base. Obviously, it is militarized the way Japan is. But Taiwan uh, was used for that purpose and so on. So vassal states are, are states that are essentially victims. They are being parasitized on by a more powerful state. And it is being used in a variety of ways. The population may be very prosperous, which is great. So it will keep them quiet. Yes. But the political class is controlled by the foreign power. The military is controlled by the foreign power. They, this nation has no actual foreign policy. And when the time comes, the hammer will fall and the nation will be destroyed. It eventually will happen. That's the characteristic. These are the characteristics of a Basal state. So that's what North Korea is for China. That's what Pakistan was for about a decade or so for China. Now Pakistan is the US's Basal state once again. So that's how the game is played. Daniel Nicholson says, is Bhutan India's de facto vassal state? If not, how and why did India go on to become the security guarantor of Bhutan? Could PRC, People's Republic of, Republic of China, choose Bhutan to be its battle theater in, it, in a short war with India? A vassal state, like I said, is a state that is used against its will to play various kinds of roles and, and serve various kinds of purposes for the superior power. Now, is India using Bhutan in this manner? You know, making Bhutan play a certain role against its wishes. India is not doing that. Bhutan, uh, from India's perspective, is a buffer. It's a small buffer state against China. India wants Bhutan to remain independent and peaceful and be out of the influence of China. That's all. Apart from that, India is not utilizing Bhutan or or. or in any of the ways that the, the Americans, for instance, use Japan or South Korea or Israel or Pakistan and any of the ways that the, Pakistan, that the Chinese use uh, use North Korea. The, the India is not doing to, to Bhutan what the Americans have been doing to the NATO states or, or, or uh, the EU. Yeah, EU's economy is right now being crushed. The European Union. Yeah, it's being crushed, the economy and so on. Um, so India has not done any of that to Bhutan. India needs to be the security guarantor of Bhutan because otherwise the Chinese will overrun Bhutan and we will have a new threat where Bhutan once used to be. And do the Bhutanese want uh, the Chinese to do that? No, obviously not. The Chinese are already nibbling away at uh, parts of northern Bhutan. Yeah, they are already doing that. The Chinese are encroaching on Nepalese territory. They are encroaching on Bhutanese territory. They are encroaching on everyone's territory. Everyone's scared of China. And India has never been a hegemonic power. That's why Bhutan obviously will rely on India rather than China as a security guarantor. Whom do you need security guarantees from? From China or from India, from Bhutan's perspective? They need security guarantees from, from, from India to safeguard them from China. Right? So that's what it is. So in the future, could the uh, could the, uh, the Chinese choose Bhutan as a battle theater in a short war with India? Well, it's very hard to use Bhutan as a battle theater because the Bhutanese territory is extremely mountainous. It's very hard to, to do warfare over there. Let's take a look at this, right? Map. We need to have a, the map uh, at least once or twice in every live stream. So here's the map. Let's go into uh, Bhutan. So if you see the satellite image of Bhutan, you will see that it's incredibly mountainous and, and full of forests. It's very hard to do any kind of warfare here except for hand-to-hand -hand fighting or very close combat, close range fighting. Yes, you can't drive tanks or, or any, any armored vehicles here. Yeah, the peaks are very high. These are the Himalayas. So even helicopter warfare or whatever will be difficult uh, and so on. 
so it's very if you want to if the chinese want to uh, use another nation to maybe make a foray into india they could possibly in some locations possibly use nepalese territory but bhutan is is very hard because it's it's so mountainous yeah and and forested uh but yeah the chinese could definitely in the future at some point in time if they feel very confident try to invade bhutan and take over parts of bhutanese territory more than what they are already doing it's certainly a possibility so india needs to ensure that bhutan's territorial integrity is not compromised and that's the guarantee that india essentially whether it is written or not india has given bhutan yeah mm-hmm. so bhutan is is uh, india's protectorate from that perspective okay vishwa says we need a fighter jet for ins vikrant the indian aircraft carrier the new one we have two in, in service right now one is ins vikramaditya which was originally uh, called baku then it was called admiral gorshkov and then it was called ins vikramaditya once we acquired it from the russians which is a whole long lengthy story which i spoke about yesterday to to a certain extent yes so uh we have this new aircraft carrier which we have built ourselves developed designed and, and created built ourselves indigenously and right now the uh this aircraft carrier the new one the ins vikrant is undergoing sea trials yes uh, the sea trials will continue until 2023 or something like that and obviously we need a contingent of jets fighter planes for the ins vikrant let's see what ins vikrant looks like shall we ins vikrant INS Vikrant. Let's put that on the screen. INS Vikrant. Um, here we are. Here we are. This is the aircraft carrier which we have built ourselves. Right now, as you can see, it has no fighter planes on its deck. So yeah, some helicopter trials are happening, and there were some other fighter jet trials, possibly also that may have happened or maybe in the process of happening. But thus far, this fire, this this warship has not acquired, has not been given its contingent of fighter planes. So this warship, INS Vikrant, this aircraft carrier, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it can carry about 30 or so, roughly, fighter planes. 30 or so fighter planes. So what kind of fighter plane would it carry? I mean. Uh, every aircraft carrier has a certain set of characteristics so if it's a very large one it can have maybe 70 80 like the american aircraft carriers have yeah maybe up to 100 so it could have a bunch or a mix of different kinds of fighter planes the americans typically have the fa18 hornet and uh, some other planes as well maybe awacs planes maybe a few helicopters and so on and so forth in the case of the indian aircraft carrier it will carry about 30 fighter planes and the question is which fighter plane will we acquire so uh, if you look at this uh, aircraft carrier it has a set of elevators i think two elevators which have a certain width so and and below the deck you will have the hangars where the planes will be refitted and refueled and all, all those things essentially refitted you know maintained and all so the maintenance will happen below the deck uh, below the deck and then the plane will have to be brought up on the on the top deck using the elevator and the elevator has a certain width which means that you cannot we cannot uh, have a plane which is wider than that on the ins vikrant and that kind of uh, you know uh, tells us that certain planes are out of the question uh, like the f35 i believe is clearly out of the question but anyway we are not acquiring that so uh, there was a supposed to be a, a naval version of the lca tejas and the navy said it's too heavy for our purpose so, so they've rejected that right now we have a twin engine deck based fighter tedbf that is being developed by hal hindustan aeronautics limited that will 
I think the trials will, the first uh, trials will happen by 25 to 25, 26, 27, somewhere there. And it will be inducted finally by 2032 or so. The twin engine deck based fighter, the, the Indian fighter plane. Until then, we need to, to have some kind of stopgap solution. One possibility is the MiG-29, which is already used in the other aircraft carrier. It's a good plane, but it's kind of old. It's kind of, you know, uh, not not a new uh, not not the cutting edge technology it's a good plane the mig 29 that's one possibility the other possibility is the rafale not the rafael but the rafale r a f a l e rafale that's the french fighter plane of which we have acquired 36 or so which are which it's a multi role fighter plane and it does very well from aircraft carriers so that's one possibility and the other possibility is the american f a 18 super hornet now which one should we go for um Maybe not the MiG-29, it's an older design. We want something more modern. Even the F-A-18 is an older design. It's from the 1970s or 80s or something like that. You look at the look at the history. The Rafale is, is a very modern fighter plane. It's an ex excellent fighter plane. Yeah. So the the it seems to boil down to two fighter planes: the F-A-18, the Super Hornet, which is an American fighter plane, and the French Rafale. So which one should we take? That's the question, isn't it? Um what, which one which one should we acquire so we would typically want to acquire about 35 36 aircraft uh, fighter planes the the vikrant will be able to carry 30 but let's have a few more so maybe 30 40 so we acquired 36 rafale so maybe another 36 new fighter planes maybe rafale maybe fa18 now which one should we go for should we go for the french plane or the american plane let me tell you a story we like stories in the 1980s um uh, the Australian Australians purchased a bunch of FA-18 fighter planes from the Americans. Yeah. Now, this FA-18 fighter plane, it has software. It has a target acquisition, acquisition system. It has a IFF thing, if friend or foe. And it has a target, target acquisition system, which is the radar and the software behind it and all that. So when the Australians acquired, when, they, when, they, when the fighter planes were delivered and the Australians tried them out and all that, they discovered something interesting. When they flew the FA-18 Super Hornets and they said that I want the target acquisition system to, let's say in, in mock combat practice or whatever, I want the, the target acquisition system to lock on to so-and-so target. When they did that, the target acquisition system refused to lock onto those targets. Essentially, what happened is that the software inside the plane refused to lock onto targets that the Americans did not, did not designate as targets. Let's say the Australians wanted, for, for whatever reason, to designate a Chinese aircraft as a target, or maybe, let's say, an Indonesian aircraft for, 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 for argument's sake, or some other aircraft, maybe a New Zealand aircraft the target acquisition system would not allow the plane to do that. It would not lock onto those targets. So these planes came essentially crippled. And the Australians were allowed to use these planes only for purposes that the Americans would whitelist. Everything else, no, you can't do it. So what's the point of buying such planes? It is, they, are, they bought these planes, I think in the 1980s, 85, 86, 87, somewhere there. It's only in 2006 or 2007 that they were able to circumvent the code and put in their own software package. 20 years it took them for, for being able to use the planes properly for whatever purpose they wanted. Does India want to be in that position? You acquire a bunch of American hardware, a bunch of American planes, and then you can't use them 
for what you need to use them for. It's like the, the Kargil War situation. The Indian Army was using the GPS system, which belongs to the Americans. And when the, the war happened, the Americans switched off the GPS system for the Indian Army. So suddenly we were not able to target things effectively. When you, when you use foreign technology, it always comes with a kill switch. They can kill it anytime they want. They can disable it remotely anytime they want. So that the Russian, see, we have used Russian technology for a very long time, fighter planes and all. It, we have never uh, run into the situation. The Russians have never done this to, to India. I, I spoke about Russia as well yesterday. That Russia, you know, India has no real friends. Yeah, you can look at that. But um, the Russians have never done that to India. This sort of blackmail. The Americans are known to do it to their to their closest allies, the Australians. Australia is a U.S. corporation. Australia is owned by the Americans. Australia is, is one of the five I nations, the U.S. and five vassals, the five English-speaking vassals. And the Australians were treated like this when they bought American fighter planes. You think India will not be treated the same way? It is dangerous to acquire any um, critical equipment from the Americans because they can they can disable it at a moment's notice when they feel like it. It is dangerous. Now, even the French possibly could do it. Possibly. But the French seek a certain degree of freedom from their own vassal status. The French are the only nation in Europe, in the EU, in NATO, which has a certain amount of certain degree of independence in foreign policy. Not completely. But to a certain extent, it does. Yeah, Their nuclear weapons and nuclear missiles are not owned by the Americans and controlled by the Americans. They control it themselves and, and certain other things as well. They have their own independent foreign policy in the, in the Indian Ocean to a certain extent. So the French would very much like to break free of this, this slavery that has been imposed upon them by the English-speaking world since the end of the Second World War. Yes? So I would say that the French deal would be, you know, more trustworthy than the American deal. So I would say that uh, India should, when it comes to these two choices, the FA-18 or the Rafale, India should go with the Rafale. And I believe that's the direction in which we seem to be going. So my assessment is that we should go with, for the Rafale, not for the FA-18 or the MiG-29, because it's the MiG-29 is kind of an older fighter plane. We want something more modern. The, the Rafale is great. And obviously, India and France have a significant amount of strategic convergence and we have been cooperating in a variety of ways, some which we know of, some which we, we may not know of, and so on. So I think India and France have a certain amount of understanding, certain 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 degree of trust to some extent, much more than what India has with the US. Hmm? So I think India should go for the Rafale rather than the FA-18. That is what I would say. Now, it's for the government to decide. But I hope that's Based on what I know, it seems to be the best choice. Harshit says, what is your view? Should India invest in strategic bombers? Hmm, strategic bombers. What's a strategic bomber? A strategic bomber is a massive aircraft. Massive aircraft that can carry lots of very large quantities of payload, ammunition, I mean, uh, weapons, systems, cruise missiles, or gravity bombs, laser-guided bombs, smart bombs, or whatever else. Ballistic missiles too can be launched from strategic bombers. So typically 30, 40, 50 tons of payload. And uh, a strategic bomber has a very large range. Typically 7, 8, 9, 10, 12,000 kilometers without refueling. Typically. 
so certain would certain strategic bombers would have a without refueling range of maybe 7000 kilometers some may have a 10000 kilometer range and with refueling you can extend it even further and so on yeah should india invest in strategic bombers so to answer this i should show you the map to understand do we need to invest in strategic bombers so india's zone of interest is the entire indian ocean region and our number one threat is china and when it comes to china the heart of china is far to the east most of china is empty most of it is 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 occupied territory occupied from tibet from the from the uyghurs and so on the real china is in the east this is the true han heartland beijing is in the far east of china so is chongqing shan shanghai guangzhou dongguang hong kong chengdu and so on yes uh, so the targets of interest for india in case a big war breaks out between india and china if we have to neutralize chinese high value targets these are all in the far east of india now you could launch ballistic missiles but i am sure that the chinese have certain ballistic missile defenses and they would guard cities like beijing etc very very carefully yeah so even if we have mirv you know mirv equipped missiles ballistic missiles with, with multiple multiple independently targetable warheads and all the chinese may have uh, you know defenses for that but if you have a strategic bomber that can fly deep into chinese territory undetected and then launch cruise missiles like the brahmos for instance which have a very high velocity then it would be very hard for the chinese to defend against that so that's why and and, and even when it comes to uh, safeguarding the, the malacca straits for instance or maybe blockading the malacca straits you could you know have have uh, strategic bombers take off from maybe in southern india or somewhere else and then you know carry out operations in the malacca strait maybe we could even carry out peacekeeping operations throughout the indian ocean if you have strategic bombers you know uh, there are lots of zones of interest for india so actually i would say that strategic bombers make a lot of sense for india right now all the bombing duties are take, are carried out by multi role fighters like the sukhoi 30 mki the the jaguars and and so on the mirages and so on and so forth even the mig 21s and so on yeah so we it would be great for india to acquire a bunch of long range strategic bombers right now all the all the air assets the the bombing assets we have are theater assets we need strategic assets a theater a military theater is a smaller zone than a military uh, a strategic area you know so we need strategic bombers and i so that's why i think that india should uh, invest in strategic bombers and i would say that uh, you know if you want to really study this in detail uh, there is this wonderful article that i can uh, point you at it is by rakesh rakesh krishnan simha simha is a wonderful uh, geopolitical analyst so this article india's black jack gamble does the iaf really need russia's tu tupolev 160 strategic bombers it's a great article it it explains everything in great detail you know uh, the case for why we need to we should possibly acquire this and how many of these should we should acquire so i i have heard you know it's it's in the news right now it's kind of a rumor or kind of possibly it may actually happen that india may be in the process of acquiring six tupolev 160 strategic bombers from russia on lease possibly yeah six of these six is a great number so this is an enormous aircraft it flies at mark 
and or what's the range i'm sure the range is uh, what's the range yeah it can fly 20000 kilometers non stop with aerial refueling it has a payload capacity of 40 tons it's a mark 2 bomber and it can go essentially anywhere in the in the indian ocean region in the south china sea and it can you know go all the way to beijing and come back and deliver a wonderful payload it can carry 12 heavy cruise missiles brahmos class cruise missiles it could possibly carry a whole set of other uh, armaments as well so i think it makes a lot of sense for india to acquire this this weapon system this this bomber yeah because we have threats from china the chinese have uh, their own h20 deep strike bomber the intercontinental deep strike bomber that they are uh, on the verge of developing and they also have uh, a stealth shyan h6k bomber that uh, uh, that they are deploying and all that so they, they there are significant threats emanating out of china and the americans also have their their strategic bombers and all that so we also should acquire this one the russians have modernized this this fighter plane this this strategic bomber i think it makes a lot of sense for india to acquire this india in the in the past 70 years 70 plus years of history has never had a strategic bomber even though it made a lot of sense for india to have it it's all because of india's strategic myopia for the longest time the indian political class and the indian military establishment also so only china only pakistan is is the major threat they kind of neglected the real threat coming from china it's only now that our horizons have properly broadened so i think it makes a lot of sense to very quickly soon acquire six of these very powerful aircraft the thing about this aircraft is that it can penetrate deep into enemy territory it flies it flies inc- incredibly fast super it's a mark 2 plane twice the speed of sound it has a terrain hugging radar which means it can it can fly very low and just above the terrain you know maybe 20 30 feet above the terrain possibly i'm not sure exactly what it is but you know it it can fly low stay below the the range of most radars and even if it's detected by radar it has countermeasures it it flies at mark 2 so it's really hard to catch up with it and that mark 2 speed coupled with the mark 2 of the brahmos can can you know deliver a huge amount of of just kinetic energy and momentum you know apart from whatever the brahmos whatever warhead the brahmos will carry so i think it makes a lot of sense so i would say if you want to know all the answers read this article wonderful article explains everything yeah so i think it it makes a lot of sense for india to invest in strategic bombers um Okay RM says Russia sold fighter helicopters to Pakistan in 2015 yeah, like I like I showed yesterday yes so why can't india sell weapons to ukraine <laughs> why should we sell weapons to ukraine the ukrainians have the, this major benefactor the superpower the americans are are pouring in arms and ammunition and weapon systems into ukraine for free yes all they ask is that the ukrainians fight to the last soldier yeah fight the proxy war for nato let your soldiers die we will give you all the weapons you need all the obsolete weaponry that you can we can provide you from nato from the european nations maybe even from the america from from the us itself so if the ukrainians are getting so much of this why would they seek arms ammunitions ammunition weapons etc from india and the truth is that ukraine is a hostile nation ukraine has never been friendly to india ukraine has always been anti india ukraine has has itself ukraine so sold tanks to pakistan Ukraine has always voted against India in the United Nations and in favor of Pakistan. India still had certain military dealings with Ukraine. Would you like to see what 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 was going on? 
let me show you here is an article from russia beyond by the same author rakesh krishnan sinha yes wonderful geopolitical analysis so fake migs missing antonovs why india must keep away from ukraine so the ukrainians sold fake migs to the croatians defective migs and look at this how can you lose an aircraft well you can if you are a ukrainian company a major crisis involving ukraine erupted in april 2015 when the ukrainians believe it or not lost five antonov 32 transport planes belonging to the indian air force these aircraft were part of a batch of 40 an32s that had been sent to ukraine state owned whatever this is utrex export for upgrades and refurbishment the remaining 64 were to upgraded to uh, the iif kanpur air force base under a technology transfer from ukraine but the planned upgrade was halted as ukrainian engineers walked out of the job and supplies of spare parts stopped uh the iif brass did not find it funny they raised an almighty fuss and told the ukrainians find our planes the antonov 32s were ultimately found and flown back to india so the ukrainians tried to steal five indian air force planes yes um a diplomat from the ukrainian embassy said told the indian side that the ifs must resolve this issue with with the company the ukrainian government cannot help and the financial portal zero hedge comments we wonder if that was ra- that rather unhelpful attitude has anything to do with india not imposing sanctions on pakistan and like i said the ukrainians have been supplying tanks to pakistan and all that so i am glad india is now staying far away from U- from ukraine it's a hostile nation we should stay away from it and uh, well good luck to them for what's coming okay next Animesh says, "What happens if a nuclear submarine sinks? Ooh, are there any sunken nuclear submarines in our oceans? So, first of all, let me tell you that submarines are way safer than fight than aircraft. And how do we know this? Because there are way more aircraft in the ocean than there are submarines in the air. So, submarines are safer than planes." <laughs> Okay, that's just, that's. I I hope you understand. It's a joke. Now, uh, what happens when a nuclear sub if a nuclear submarine sinks? Well, if it sinks, it's it's dangerous. Are there any sunken nuclear subs in our oceans? Yes. Uh, let's let's find out. So let's put a Google search on the screen and let's take a look at it together. Uh, there was a Russian nuclear submarine called the K two seven eight. Komsomolets, yes. Ah, I got the spelling right. The Soviet submarine K two seven eight Komsomolets. It was a very advanced submarine, which uh, which sank in the Barents Sea off the coast of coast of Norway in the late nineteen eighties. And yeah, it 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 was not only a nuclear powered submarine, which means it had a nuclear reactor with nuclear fuel inside. I believe it 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 may also have had um, nuclear weapons on board. Did it have uh, missiles? Had missiles? Did it? It carried torpedoes and cruise missiles. Uh, okay, I'm not sure if it was carrying nuclear missiles at the time, but it certainly had its nuclear reactor. So there was an accident on board, and the thing sank. And I'm sure many people, many many of the crew perished. Yes, 42 total died. So that's one example. So when you have a sunken nuclear submarine, 
with a nuclear reactor on board, it is a very dangerous thing. You have to, well, as long as the nuclear reactor itself is not breached, uh, and if it is, uh, then then it's uh, still okay. But even then, uh, you have to keep on testing the, uh, the waters in the region for any possible nuclear contamination. You know, any 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 uh, radiation that is being that is le- leaking out of the of the thing, and if there is a radiation leak, they will you would have to take extraordinary measures to perhaps you know, uh, to perhaps salvage the submarine or maybe to to entomb it in some kind of casing and ensure that the that nuclear uh, fuel doesn't leak out, or possibly even salvage the nuclear reactor. It's very dangerous, very hazardous, and people will be will get exposed to nuclear radiation. But what can you do about it? So yes, when a nuclear submarine sinks, as long as the nuclear reactor isn't bro- isn't destroyed or is, it isn't breached, it, the situation is still okay. In the long run, you would possibly want to take out the nuclear reactor in some in some manner, and and uh, you know take it out of the ocean. But if you can't do it, then you have to keep monitoring the the the, the entire region for any evidence of of radiation leak leakage. And if the nuclear reactor itself breaks, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. If there is any leakage, any substantial leakage, it's a disaster. Uh, comparable with the with the Three Mile Island disaster or Chernobyl or the Fukushima disaster, it's the same kind of thing. You know, we don't want that to happen ever. But yes, there have been nuclear submarine accidents like the one that I've put on the screen, the K two seven eight Komsomolets. All right, let's take some more questions. Atharva says, how is Mohammed bin Salman so confident in going against the USA? Yes, he wants to join BRICS, which is essentially rebellion against the US. Isn't the absolute monarchy too fragile and volatile and a coup is highly possible? How could he take such a big risk? By the way, I'm 17 years old. I'm currently pursuing bachelor's in Chinese studies. Characters are very difficult to learn and all names in history sound the same. Ha <laughs> ha. All the best in your studies, sir. And it's good that somebody is studying the Chinese language and, and, and stuff like that, culture, because we need our own experts. Vis-a-vis Chinese, uh, Chinese uh, understanding of, the, of China and all that. Yeah, so it's it's great to see that. Now, how is Mohammed bin Salman so confident in going against the US? There are two extreme possibilities. One possibility is that he is completely stupid. He's making a suicidal choice. The other possibility is that he has calculated all the possibilities very well. And he is very confident that he has complete control within his country. And he is confident that there is no possibility of a coup against him. See, in the Saudi royal family, there are lots of, you know, claimants to the throne. You know, people who who are first in line, second in line, third in line, tenth in line, that sort of thing, to the throne. There's always, uh, you know, this 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 line, uh, the line of uh, line of claimants to, to the throne. So uh, typically, it's the it's the it's the first in line who becomes the next king. Uh, so, and obviously, when you have such a situation, you will have, you know, politics that's being played behind the scene. There will have people who are ambitious and who, who would like to see nothing more than the current king being replaced, and possibly me coming to power in in this in his stead, that sort of thing. So, it's always a dangerous situation, even in the best of times. So, uh, when Mohammed bin Salman came to power, he, you know, if you re- recall, he had. Uh, he had taken a significant number of his family members hostage in a hotel, in a five-star hotel, in a luxury hotel. And I think uh, whatever was engineered at the time would have ensured that he has absolute power over the nation. Yes. 
so it looks like i don't think he is a silly person or a stupid person i think he's a very intelligent person a very ambitious and determined person person and it seems it looks like he has done all the calculations and he has seen what the different threats to him are and it looks like he has calculated that he is strong enough powerful enough and in control enough of his nation to go ahead and 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 try this out you know try to go against the us and try to become a, become a member of brics go towards the india china russia side instead of the us side which is a huge huge very risky thing but looks like he has calculated that he he is is going to be able to succeed in that so let's see how it goes but it's obviously a very big risk that he has taken for sure Jaspreet Singh says, "What's the difference between the term Indo-Aryans and Aryans? Because I've seen that these terms are used interchangeably. Also, how Aryans, Scythians, and Huns are different from each other? Do they have their all their origins in India before moving out? Okay, good question. Let's take the second part of the question first. No, let's. How do we do this? <laughs> Aryans. This term Aryan." Aryan, the Aryan term, or the Indo-Aryan term, it's a Western construct. This term was created by foreigners, by Westerners, Europeans. It's not an Indian term. Yeah, the actual term is Arya, A-R-Y-A, Arya. That's what the, the, the that's the term that was used in the Indo-Iranian world. If it is to be used as a self-designation, it can only be used by the people of Indian origin or Persian origin. And the Persian people were also descendants of Indians, of ancient Indians. And that's why they also considered themselves to be Arya. The Indians always use the term Arya as an adjective that signifies superior behavior. Yeah? Noble behavior. So a person who would be called Arya would be a person who is highly cultured and civilized it's not it was not used in india as an ethnic or racial term the persians used it as an ethnic self designator as a racial term as an ethnic term that we are the arya people so it was it no longer meant superior or or cultured or civilized it meant persian for the persian people for the descendants of the ancient indians who moved to persia so the term in the sanskrit language and in the old iranian language which is a descendant a daughter of the sanskrit language the term was arya a r y a not aryan and then the europeans decided to mangle it up to to, to distort it and in they started using the term aryan so the term aryan for from the european perspective meant the entire indo european language family people who spoke the indo european languages these were all called the aryan peoples that's that's the kind of that's how they used this this made up term and then we know the story in the 20th century early the, the first half of the 20th century the the germans the nazis they misappropriated this term and used it uh to designate the nordic people the north european people and that's how this term uh, picked up this term became associated with nazism and racism and all the all all that and then it became difficult for the historians the scholars in the west to keep using the term because for most people the lay people the term aryan denoted nazi had very strong nazi connotations so then they decided to start using to 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 add a prefix so they added the prefix indo to aryan 
and they called started calling it indo-aryan so earlier there was a they, they had created this this artificial set of families the language family called the aryan languages which are the languages that are spoken in northern western india and afghanistan pakistan bangladesh bhutan uh, not bhutan nepal and so on yeah now these languages are called indo-aryan languages so it's these are all artificially made up terms these are all eurocentric western occidentalist terms these are not terms that have emerged out of india or persia right so that's the so there is no real difference between indo aryans and aryans they, they just don't, don't want to use the term aryans anymore because it has nazi connotations that's why they now use the term indo aryan but the meaning is the same from their perspective yes so there's no real difference it's just that the 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 term aryan is now tainted even in the us the white supremacist groups they call themselves the aryans or whatever the hell it is yeah so it's a racist term it's a white supremacist term it's a nazi term that's what they have done to it so now it's this so now academics and scholars don't use it anymore they they use the term indo aryan but it has it has the same meaning yeah <clears throat> so that's what it is now um uh, how are the aryan skithians and huns different from each other so the skithians so if you are to consider the aryan term as an ethnic designator then if you were to use it in that manner it means it denotes the people of india and, and persia so the term aryan if you want to use aryans as as an ethnic term it means the people of india and persia the skithians were descendants of ancient indians there were lots of migrations of indians out of india the, one of the first known migrations is happened as in the aftermath of the battle of the 10 kings in which a whole number of uh, of of rigvedic clans were evicted out of india because they lost the battle yeah Uh, that's a whole different story i uh, will not go into that so that's one of the first uh, known examples or instances of indians migrating out of india westwards and to the north of india yeah and then you had these regions called uttarakuru and uttaramadra uttarakuru let's put it on the screen uttarakuru what was uttarakuru what was uttaramadra so uttarakuru was north of the himalayas and north of the kuru mahajanapada so which essentially means that uttarakuru was tibet and present day xinjiang which is currently for now occupied by china that was uttarakuru the entire uh, expanse of of vast expanse of land north of nepal and bhutan and, and arunachal and uh, all of that north of kashmir north of ladakh that was uttarakuru and present day central asia which is kyrgyzstan uzbekistan tajikistan Tur- Tur- turkmenistan all of that was uttara madra at that time gandhara was a part of india which is now called afghanistan so the skithians they lived in uttarakuru and uttara madra they were a nomadic people they were of indian origin they their kings described themselves as descended from vedic kings right they performed uh, rituals such as the ashwamedha yagna and all that for some time and then eventually their culture became mixed up with people from other other parts of the world from other central asian nomadic people so eventually the skithians became a kind of mixed play, mixed race yeah but uh, culturally they remained very much indian they were sun worshippers uh, even when they fought with the with the persians and all that so the skithians are are descendants of ancient indians so which means that if you were to call indians as aryans then the skithians were descended from ancient aryans the huns were not so at all the huns originate uh, north of present day china in the region that's more or less roughly present day mongolia 
that's where the Huns originated about two and a half thousand years before today. The Chinese called these people the Xionyu, X-I-O-N-G-N-U or something like that. That's the spelling uh, in, in the Roman alphabet, the English alphabet. Yeah. Uh, so the, the Huns emerged from that region. They were warlike people. They forced the Kushans and then the Scythians to 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 run westwards and southwards. And that's how the, the Scythian and Kushan invasion of India happened. Uh, the Huns were a, a, an Eastern Asian people. They looked very different from Indians. You know, the, the typical uh, Eastern Asian features, the, the so-called the so-called Mongoloid features, right? That's what the Huns originally had and they, then they also ruled over large parts of Central Asia and even Eastern Europe and they also acquired a mixed ethnicity. They mixed with the people of these regions and eventually it all become, became a big melting pot. So, so the Huns have a different origin, a different ancestry. The, uh, the Scythians are essentially descendants of ancient Indians which means descendants of ancient Aryans if you want to use the term Aryans for ancient Indians. So that is the story. Sudipta says, could you please explain how demonetization used to work in ancient times when a new ruler used to come and issue his own coins? What happened to the old coins in circulation? Very interesting question. It's nice to see a question like this. So listen, um, in the old days, coins were either silver or gold. Sometimes when times were bad, you would have, you know, alloys, which is like you know smaller coins or coins with with uh, with gold that mixed with some other metal you know slightly cheapened form of the thing but typically when you had the great emperors of india whether it is the gupta emperors or the or the kushan emperors or the mauryan emperors or even later on you would have typically gold coins or later on silver coins so the, the various mahakshatrapas also had gold gold coins and later on even even silver, silver coins so now the value of the coins came from the precious metal, not from whatever was stamped on top of it. Yes? So we find lots of coins in archaeological sites. You know, sometimes you find pots that have been buried by people long ago and then forgotten for whatever reason or they could not be retrieved full of coins. You find that. Sometimes you find coins strewn around here and there. You know, people losing coins from their pocket or whatever. So you find coins, lots of coins in archaeological sites. I'm not sure if you have found Mauryan era coins, but we certainly have lots of examples of Kushan era coins. You know, uh, uh, Kanishka's coins and and coins of his later successors. You have Gupta era coins, which which depict the Gupta emperors as really muscular, ripped guys. You know, warlike guys, also playing musical instruments and all that. And you find coins of Mahakshatrapas like Nahapana, etc., all across the place. They found coins of Nahapana and and Vasudeva, etc., in in, in the British islands, in the Roman world, in the Greek world, and so on. So, so the question is, when a new ruler is to come to power, what would happen to the old coins? The new ruler would need to issue new coins with his face on top of it, on the coins, right? So what happens? So what would happen? So typically, the two, either one of two things would happen. They would either take all the coins back, possibly, possibly, that's one possibility. We don't know. We don't have the records. So, I, I, one logically, two, one of two things could happen. One is you take all the old coins, you melt them up, and then you create new coins with the with the with the face of the new ruler on them. Or secondly, you just take the old coin, heat it up, and then stamp it with the, you know, stamp it with the face of the new ruler. So you don't even have to melt it; you just have to put a new face on it. And sometimes you can see the outline of the old face also on it. You know. So one of the examples I can give you is the is the, you, they have found many coins of the great great Mahakshatrapa of Nahapana 
that have been overstruck with the likeness of the um, of Gautami Putra Satakarni. Yeah. So Gautami Putra Satakarni most likely lived a couple of generations after Nahapana. Some historians say that uh, Gautami Putra Satakarni was most, must have defeated Nahapana because that's when you do such a thing like you know superimposing your your image on the image of of the older of the previous king but most likely i think uh, gautam putra satakarni lived a couple of generations after nahapana and maybe he conquered territories that were at some point in time ruled by the mahakshatra of nahapana and then he acquired those coins and he placed he, he embossed his own likeness his own face on top of nahapana's coins so that's the kind of thing that happened you typically never threw away old coins because they were valuable they were precious metal metal gold or silver so you would either melt them and create new co- new coins or if you did not want to go through all the trouble you would simply overstrike the coins with your own image and then it it would be used as your as your own coin so that's the kind of uh, process that would happen obviously uh, india has a history that goes back thousands and thousands of years coins have been in use for at least 2000 years minimum most likely at least 2500 years i'm sure that it must have been in use even before that because we had a iron age copper age bronze age all of these things so um so yeah that's how it would work that's how demonetization would work in ancient times yeah uh, Tejas says, in ancient India, Bihar was one of the most prosperous place, places in India. Bihar was a place of ancient dynasties like Magad, Mauryans, and, and so on. Bihar was a birthplace of Sati, uh, Sita, Mithila. Yes, Mithila. Uh, for thousands of years, Bihar has been the center of learning as well. We know that. So why is Bihar in its current state? Why is it not doing so well in modern times? In the past, the whole of India was incredibly prosperous. Yes, we know that Bihar was, was a fantastically prosperous place. Magad, after all, Patliputra was the ancient capital of India for, for the longest time. Yes. Um, it was the capital of the Mauryan dynasty. Chandragupta Maurya, Ashok Maurya, Bimbisar, and, and later Samprati and all that. These kings. It was the capital of the of the Shunga dynasty, Pushyamitra Shunga and his descendants. It was the capital of the Gupta Empire, the Gupta dynasty, and so on. So it's been, in a way, one of the one of the most prosperous and most important parts of India. Many empires emerge out of there. Patliputra is one of the greatest cities of, of ancient India and obviously a place of learning. We had great Vishwavidyalayas, you know, universities like, like Nalanda and all that. Many more, I'm sure. So what happened to Bihar? What happened to Bihar is what happened to all of India. We had Takshashila far to the west of, of, uh, of Magad, all the way in Gandhar. Takshashila was a great university, great center of learning, the great uh, Mauryan, um, what shall we call him? The great mentor of the Mauryan emperor Chandragupta, who Chanakya, Vishnu Gupta Chanakya, who was from Magad, he taught in Takshashila, in Gandhar. We know that. So India was interconnected. All of India was incredibly prosperous. Think of Gandhar itself. It was a place of learning. You have so many viharas and stupas there. And you had the great University of Takshashila. A lot of prosperity as well. Think of a place like Saurashtra. Saurashtra was, was the gateway to the West for India. During the time of the great Mahakshatrapa rulers, the Scythian, Indo-Scythian rulers, Saurashtra was incredibly prosperous because we had the great ports in Saurashtra through which trade with Egypt and the Greek world and the Roman world would be carried out. 
and that's why it was the, the, that's why the Gupta emperors decided to take over Saurashtra from the from the Indo-Scythians from the Mahakshatrapas. Think of Kalinga. Kalinga was incredibly prosperous and a great center of arts and culture and learning. Think of Sri Lanka. It was called Golden Lanka. What happened to all these places? Everything was destroyed by the invaders and occupiers. Firstly by the Turks and then by the Europeans. And everything of value was stolen out, plundered out of the Indian subcontinent. That's why all these... In, and think of Bengal, Bangladesh. Bengal was possibly... The British described Bengal as the most pro- prosperous province of India. Obviously, they saw it from their perspective. But Bengal was indeed incredibly prosperous. Yes? And it was a... It, it was a great place of learning and culture. And look at Bengal today. Whether you talk about East Bengal or West Bengal, look what's happened there. Is there any prosperity? So what happened? First of all, you had a thousand years of foreign occupation, which destroyed prosperity all across India. All of India was incredibly prosperous. One third minimum of the entire global GDP came from India. India accounted for at least a third of the entire world's GDP, if not more. Most likely, it would have accounted for more than half of the entire world's GDP if you go back two and a half thousand years, because there was nothing else in the world, uh, apart from small places like Egypt. Egypt was minuscule compared to India. Rome was insignificant compared to India from the terms of GDP. Look up Angus Madison's research. Don't trust me. Yep. So what happened is the Europeans destroyed India. The first, the Turks destroyed India and what was left was destroyed by the Europeans. India became, we know what happened, yes, completely destitute. Famines, hundreds of artificially engineered famines and so on. So that's why things are like this. And then after independence, so-called independence, we had the Nehruvian era. And then we had various state governments. I'm not taking anybody's name, yeah. I'm in various parts of India who we're not interested in, 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 in progress, in development, and so on. So that's what happened to various parts of India, including Bihar. Very sad. And it's time that we get our act together. I mean, Bihar is one of the greatest parts of India. Today, unfortunately, in some parts of India, people make fun of uh, Indians who come from UP and Bihar. That is horrible. UP has been the ancient heartland of India. Kashi is the epicenter of Indian civilization for thousands of years, more, more than 10,000 years. And Bihar, Magad, is one of the great power centers of India. And a great place of learning and culture and advancement. We would like to see Uttar Pradesh and, U- and Bihar regain their great glory, which they always had. So it's time we, we start doing that, you know. Um, Arnav Carpenter says, how can we say that the famines during the British rule were engineered by the British? Because there were many famines before British arrival which killed millions. How are those famines different from the ones during British rule? What data do you have to pro- to claim that uh, there were many famines before the British arrived? If you look at uh, historians, if, of the writings of historians like Arthi Majumdar and others, you will find that before the British arrived in India, in the past 2000 years, before the British arrived in India, there were three major famines. Three. Of course, there were periods of drought caused by the El Nino phenomenon and all that. And yet, India never had famines. There were a couple of famines during the Mughal rule, the Turkic rule, because of mismanagement and all that. But why? But before this, this before the millennium of humiliation, India almost never ever had famines. Show me the record, right? You're making a claim without any evidence. 
I invite you to show me the evidence of famines that killed millions of Indians before the millennium of humiliation. Show me evidence. Yes, the burden on proof of proof lies on the person who makes the claim. I am telling you there were no such famines. Maybe one or two, maybe three in 2000 years. Now, um, and, and how is it that there, there were no famines, despite the El Nino phenomenon, despite uh, sometimes you have this periodic uh, bouts of drought? Why were there no famines? Because Indians knew how to manage food grains. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. This is a tweet of mine, okay? Saraswati civilization grain silos from 7380 belief, uh, 7380 BC. Look at the size of these grain silos. See, you can see a human being squatting next to it. These are incredibly large grain silos. I think it's from Rakigari or, or, or Kalibangan or something. Yeah. These silos have been dated through carbon dating of organic uh, uh, trace materials to 7380 BC and these are enormous grain silos you can you can store grain that will last you for several years so even nine and a half thousand years before today Indians knew how to safeguard their grain they had they were cultivating grain in large quantities and they they would have enough grain in storage that could you know safely keep people well fed for for several years so indian rulers and indian society always had this it was impossible to have a famine in india that's how well managed the entire system used to be even 9000 years before today so in a society such as that if a famine happens it's only it can only happen if it is artificially engineered and it's only after the british came to india that suddenly famine started happening every year every single year in every part in various parts of india Famine after famine after famine. If you add up the total of the death toll of these famines, you come, you you will reach a figure close to a hundred million Indians who died in these artificial famines. So please educate yourself, yourselves. Let me not say it really annoys me to see these questions, but I understand why it is so. So it's because our education system hasn't given us the right perspective. It has not given us the true the facts. Yeah, has. Those of you who are watching, have, have your history textbooks taught you that we had proper famine management systems for thousands of years. That even during the Saraswati Sindhu era, we had these systems in which you had these massive grain silo, silos that could store grain, that could feed people for, for several years. Not just one year, but several years. We had these systems in place. It was impossible to have famines in India. It's only when the British arrived and they saw that the Indians fight so well and then they refused to, to give up so they decided that the best way to defeat the indians is to starve them if you are hungry if you're starving how will you fight that's what they did so please i beg you educate yourselves and stop having this inferiority complex and stop blaming yourselves you are the victims blame the oppressor not the victim saurabh and saurabh <laughs> two, two questions by saurabh what was the story, history of human sacrifice? Is it present in ancient India also? Did Native Americans do human sacrifice on a very large scale? Historians always say this, but I find some, I want some hard evidence to support this narrative. You know, there is no evidence of human sacrifice in India. Some random accounts here and there, you will always find some criminals doing something criminal. 
in a in a in a in a society which is the world's largest society the world's largest geographical area of one civilization you will always have there's always some criminal elements in society you can't portray that as ritualized human sacrifice if they if they murder somebody yeah so what's the history of human sacrifice there have been lots of cultures that have practiced human sacrifice but much of it is propaganda for instance when julius caesar uh conquered the british islands the british isles he first of all conquered europe western europe from the celtic people then he conquered the british isles too and he wrote this wonderful account in latin which is now used nowadays used as a textbook for a textbook of for learning latin so uh, he wrote about the, the celtic people the gallic people and all gaulish people and he said that these people they practice the barbaric human sacrifices the wicker man they they put they put the victims in this huge this wicker statue of a human being and then they burn them alive there is no evidence that this actually happened but that's what julius caesar wrote maybe it was done to justify his conquest of this people and to portray them as inferior barbaric people so it was it was it is all right to conquer such people and maybe massacre a few million of them yeah so human sacrifice definitely has existed much of it may be propaganda but in some places you obviously have human sacrifice but the funny thing is that when see for instance in europe in the middle ages the medieval era the the most popular book in europe at that time in in the middle ages was the maleus maleficarum maleus maleficarum the hammer of the witches it was a manual on how to accuse somebody a woman of being a witch how to identify the the identifying characteristics and how to torture her to death and hundreds of thousands of european women were accused of being witches and they were either burned alive or tortured to death is this not state sponsored religiously ordained human sacrifice so human sacrifice was very much prevalent in christian europe and the manual was the maleus maleficarum the most popular book in europe during the middle ages imagine that yeah so that is human sacrifice um so when something like this happens in the west they portray it as something else but when 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 let's so in some cultures you have war and you have execution you take prisoners and sometimes prisoners are executed yes uh let me uh, if i can find it you know one second man i called let me um shackled skeletons let me show you an image you may be disturbed so in case you are disturbed please don't look but yeah it's an image of skeletons all right it's from greece would you consider this to be human sacrifice this is about 2000 years old if i'm not mistaken some something like that so oh here it says that shackled skeletons unearthed in greece could be remains of slaughtered rebels so in this case this is not a human sacrifice even though they have clearly been all shackled together and slaughtered it's not human sacrifice it is just a execution of rebels yeah it's a mass grave look at the horror of this of this scene so when it's done in europe it's it's a it's it's not a human sacrifice or something but when it's it's done in 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 uh, in asia perhaps or among the north american people the native americans then they would classify that as as evidence of a backward primitive barbaric brutal culture that sacrificed human beings it's very likely that you had wars people were taken soldiers who were taken prisoner in war and then they were executed do you remember what happened in chitorgar 
Akbar, Akbar the Great, besieged Chittor. Eventually, the women committed Johar. They had to commit Johar because they did not want to be captured alive or dead by the Turks. The men went out and did their Saka and they fought to the last man. They all died. And then the, the defenseless population of the city. 30,000 non-combatants, unarmed civilians, men, women, children. 30,000 men, women, children were executed in one day. Is that human sacrifice? What, what exactly? How would you characterize that? So it's certainly possible that the North Americans, the Native Americans, they would have had conflicts between various clans and tribes and all that. And sometimes they would capture some people and then maybe they would be executed or whatever. Would you characterize that as the outcome of warfare or would you characterize that as human sacrifice? So in many cases, when non-Europeans are involved, many of these cases of warfare, of execution, have been labeled incorrectly with prejudice deliberately as human sacrifice yeah so human sacrifice obviously uh, when you execute somebody that's i mean sac sacrifices typically when you are doing it for some god or something i'm not sure how how prevalent that was in in the ancient world i think lots of the so-called cases of human sacrifice may actually be executions of criminals possibly or or rebels or soldiers captured from the enemy or whatever yeah and in some cases, there may actually be human sacrifice. So it's it's a mixed bag. I think uh, executions and all that would have existed as long as the human species has, has, has existed. Yeah, but the 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 claim that Native Americans did human sacrifice at a, at a very large scale is absolute lies. Absolute lies. Not true at all. I would say that Native Americans were more civilized than the Europeans who destroyed them. All right, and in India, there is no no history of human sacrifice none whatsoever until the turks and the christians the europeans came in then it all happened because we had at the hands of the christians the portuguese you had the the goa inquisition the barbaric inhuman brutalities that they perpetrated on innocent indians men women children in the name of the religion yeah that that is that is human sacrifice yes so the foreigners the turks and the, the europeans have indeed perpetrated such atrocities in India on Indians. But Indians, what, what does Indian culture tell you? Whether it, the Dharmic culture, Hinduism, Sikhism, Jainism, Buddhism, etc., it says Ahinsa Parmo Dharma. Non violence is the highest uh, ideal. Yes. So, yes, violence unfortunately has to be resorted to in self defense or for righteous causes, but non violence is the greatest ideal. That's what we say. That's what our culture has always believed in. And there is no concept of sacrificing a life to a god. Sometimes, yeah, in, in some cases, such certain rituals have emerged where you sacrifice certain animals to god and all. And and yes, the, when times were bad, there were certain kul devis, goddesses, who would demand human sacrifice of your enemies in order to appease her. So certain Rajput clans had certain kul devis like, like Chamunda, or Kali, and to appease, to, to please your Kuladevi, you would have to offer her human heads, but not innocent human heads. Not innocent human heads. The heads of the of the evildoers. You if you if you killed an innocent person and offered that person's head to the goddess, that would not give you any benefit. She would not be pleased with that, according to the belief, right? She wanted the 
heads of evil doers of the enemies of the people so yeah so i would not consider that to be well truly human sacrifice or in a, in in an evil sense yeah it's it's like getting rid of of the barbarians who have in, invaded your society and who want to destroy your culture and your people so yeah that's the deal so india overall does not have any real history of human sacrifice no history of sacrificing sacrificing innocents or killing innocents not at all but in other parts of the world yes in europe you had that and so on and so forth yeah it's a whole so it's a it's a very big topic you know you could have a month long seminar you know program of seminars and discuss this in very great detail so many more questions that i have but i will not be able to take them let me take some questions now from the live chat as always i am not able to take all the questions i've selected so let me take some questions from the live chat if you have questions from live chat do ask me all right archaeologists are trying their best uh, to claim that a teenage girl excavated in peru was a human sacrifice yeah that's the uh, mainstream general consensus that that girl who was discovered in peru she she was essentially mummified because of the cold and the dry weather they say that she was given some kind of hallucinogen some kind of drug uh, to consume and then she was strangled and left on a mountain top or something yeah that's 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 what they do claim uh, what else uh, akshit kumar yadav says why not russian fighter planes well get the best possible fighter plane you have right so uh, if you want 36 fighter planes to take off from your from your uh, aircraft carrier let's consider the options we have the mig 29 which is an older like like a third generation third yeah most likely third generation fighter plane second or third third third, third generation fighter plane from russia it can take off and land from an aircraft carrier deck deck the the newer ones like the sukhois etc are too large they can't take off or land from aircraft carrier decks they 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 are not suitable for the role is there any other russian fighter plane that that fits the bill not quite so so the and only candidate is the mig 29 the competition for the mig 29 is let's say the fa18 the american uh, super hornet and the rafale if you consider all these planes all the three the most modern one is the rafale it's a 4.5 generation fighter plane very advanced fighter plane far better than the fa18 and far better than the mig 29 so why not go for the best one we have the money we have the money so why not get the best possible bang for your buck so that's why that's what i'm saying i have nothing against russia or their fighter planes the fighter planes do well the mig 29s are good planes but they're not the best and we can afford the best so so that's the reason why i said not that all right um what else do we have do we have anything interesting um... <laughs> indian fashion history I, i i wonder why our historians don't write about this don't research this if you look at uh, various indian sculptures all across the length and the breadth of the indian subcontinent from various time periods for, let's say the kushan period the gupta period the mahakshatrapa period the the, the indo-scythian period the uh, chola period the chola dynasty the, the, the chera period the, the vijayanagar empire we have so many sculptures in in te- on on the walls of temples most of them are still found in the south the northern ones are all gone destroyed by barbarians yes 
but we still find lots of evidence you know and we find these uh, cave paintings of of indian men and women ladies and gentlemen wearing various kinds of uh, you know designer outfits you could say such incredible fashions we had and not a single goddamn indian historian has bothered to catalog this and and write about this it's it's so disappointing that our historians are good for nothing losers and they are abdicating the duty and they're wasting our money and our time writing anti national garbage so yeah you know we have we have a very ancient history of fashion it's something that you know i i mean i would have to put lots of images on the, on the screen and speak about them but yes it's it's something that i i would invite you all to look at just look at ancient um, images of cave paintings from ajanta elora other places yes look at various sculptures we had on 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 the walls of temp temples and other monuments we get incredible examples of ancient fashion very stylish especially the the fashion that ladies used you know the kind of hairstyles they had the kind of dresses they wore various styles of sarees very uh, the kind of ornaments and jewelry they wore and in in the cave paintings you see the kind of bright colors they used to have and the fact that dark skin was considered to be beautiful incredible there is so much to explore india is like a gold mine for historians sociologists and so on but they refuse to do that so i hope some of you will go on to do that in the future uh let's take one more question because we are almost at the end of today's um, today's episode hmm let's see yes they had sandals they had sling bags they had uh, you know high high platform sandals kind of thing you know those those you know people who are slightly shorter they wear these these thick soles and all so that sort of thing and sling bags they had mirrors and they very interesting very interesting fashion we had various kinds of dresses they used to wear my prediction for india in 2023 india wins india rises india keeps rising india keeps progressing india keeps doing well and we'll get we'll get stronger that's my prediction for india in 2023 uh i guess that's 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 about it yeah i think that's it for today yeah so thank you so much for all the questions it's always fun maybe we should have one one session that is simply live chat questions that are take only from the live chat that would be interesting that would be like it, i it would perhaps give you more more uh more options of asking questions yeah more opportunities so maybe i'll do that next week possibly i think the world cup final is on sunday the, the next sunday one week from now maybe i could do a live stream when i take in which i take questions from the live chat while commentating on what's happening in the world cup maybe maybe i'll think about that maybe yeah so let's let's do something like that soon until then take care thank you so much as always for your for all the questions for your participation for your support for your viewership thank you so much very grateful always very grateful until next time take care and i will see you very soon thank you bye good night good day take care